What do you do after selling a company for $1 billion? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant. And today, my guest is Kevin Ryan. Kevin first saw the power of the internet when he launched the Dilbert website. So you could say it all started with a cartoon for Kevin. But he soon joined a small 20-person startup called DoubleClick in New York City. DoubleClick built the backbone technology for internet advertising and also managed the ad sales for many major media companies. Kevin quickly became the CEO and grew the company to a multi-billion dollar public company. DoubleClick was Wall Street's darling and the toast of the New York City tech community. But then, the crash came. Many of DoubleClick's clients went out of business. The rates advertisers were willing to pay dropped significantly. And worse, the media companies wanted to sell their own ads. Everything, it seemed, was eating away at their business. But somehow, Kevin turned things around. And you'll soon hear how. After recovering from the crash and rebuilding a powerful business, Kevin sold it for $1.1 billion to Hellman and Friedman in 2005. Some people thought the deal was rich at the time, that the private equity firm paid too much money for DoubleClick. But Hellman and Friedman just sold DoubleClick to Google for over $3 billion. You'll hear Kevin's comments on that too. So what do you do after selling a company for $1 billion? Some might retire, take a long vacation, or go into a lower stress job like venture capitalism. Not Kevin, he's already started three new companies in New York. Get ready to hear the pitch for all of them soon. Kevin, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I know you've had a long career and you kind of took a few turns before getting into entrepreneurship, but uh, you know, tell me how you, you started out in Europe and then your first few corporate ventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up, uh, I'm from the Midwest originally, but grew up mostly in Europe. Uh, but after I graduated from college, I went to work on Wall Street and worked for a couple of years there. I went to business school at INSEAD, which is outside of Paris. Then worked for Euro Disney for the launch of Euro Disney, which looked like a surefire winner and uh, was, in fact, an uh, incredibly unpleasant experience uh, launching that in France. What went wrong with that, just real quickly? I think that there were just a number of assumptions that Disney made in uh, launching the park that, that obviously turned out to not be right at all. Um, a lot of people came, but it wasn't as profitable, and there was a lot of political infighting within Disney. <laughs> and so if you were a junior guy there, it wasn't really all that much fun. Um, but I learned a lot. There were great people. Uh, but the one thing I decided uh, after a couple of years, which is I wanted to work for a smaller company. So uh, I got a job back in the United States in New York working for United Media, which is a division of Scripps. And um, they own the rights to Dilbert and Peanuts and a lot of intellectual property. It's a newspaper syndicate. Uh, and uh, that was about 180 people. And there I had a fantastic experience. Uh, we were doing a turnaround. The company wasn't doing that well. We had to let some people go, refocus the company, but it became profitable. Uh, and during that experience, I um, was part of a team that we launched the Dilbert website in 1995, and that really changed my career. Uh, so that must have been fun. I mean, who'd think their career, you know, when you start out, is one day going to be changed by comics, right? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, uh, but we, we had this problem, which is that there's only one newspaper often in each town, and we thought there were a lot of people wanting to listen to, to see Dilbert in some way, and how do we get it to them? And so the internet had just uh, started to become really commercial. It was in 95, and we launched the Dilbert website, and it was a huge success. Wow. 
So what were kind of your key takeaways from that success? Like, you know, you've seen Euro Disney fail. Now you've seen Dilbert uh, be a success, right? Well, we, Dilbert beat Mickey Mouse in that sense. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, one of the key takeaways was just that you could see already in 95, even though there, we didn't really have very many search engines, you didn't have a lot of the infrastructure, it, you didn't know how to sell ads, you didn't know what was going to work. But what you saw was that people, you know, were passionate about the Internet. And no one who started using the internet stopped using it. They just used it more and more and more. And even though percentage-wise, it was a small percentage of the U.S. population, I came away thinking that this is the most fundamental business shift that's going to occur in my lifetime, and it's going to reverberate through uh, almost everything, which is obvious today, but was maybe not quite as obvious <laughs> at the time. So up until this point, you, you'd kind of worked on new ventures for corporations, but mm -hmm. you know, it's not like you're pretty much always a corporate operative, and yep. you're sitting there at United Media, you get this pat on the back, Delbert worked out, it must have been fun to work with Delbert. Yep. So you know, where do you go from there? How do you kind of figure out what your next step is? So uh, at that point, I thought that, uh, that advertising was going to be a key part of the, uh, the internet infrastructure. And I could see when we wanted to have advertising on our site that it, it, the infrastructure didn't exist at that point to really do it effectively. And so I went out in the beginning of 96 and started meeting with companies to see what was out there because I wanted to start something that, that had to do with advertising on the Internet. And one of the companies I met was a very small company of 20 people called DoubleClick. Uh, already had great engineering, great people, a great piece of technology. And I realized that, you know what, I think I'm going to team up with them and actually join the small company instead of starting my own. Uh, because uh, it, they, were, they had a valuable position. And I, I went in as CFO, became president, and then uh, later became CEO, and we built it up and had an uh, incredible experience. Uh, so now I imagine at the time there must have been, I don't know, were there a lot of other companies that looked somewhat like DoubleClick at the time, or were they like the first ones to be out there doing Internet ads? There were a couple others. There was a uh, predecessor to 24-7, which was the same size at that time. Um, but I really felt that the people and technology at DoubleClick were going to make it the long-term leader, and I thought that I could play a role in doing that um, and, and join the team. So, like, when you walked in there, as opposed to all the other companies, mm -hmm. what, what made you say, hey, this is something special, I want, I want to be with these guys and not join one of the other firms to start my own? So one was that they were thinking very big. I mean, the plan was that this was going to be a billion-dollar company someday. Uh, and so that... that Commitment and focus was important. The second was that the technology resources and people um, were far superior to anything I'd ever met. And principally, it was Kevin O'Connor and Dwight Merriman. And the two of them, you know, were truly, truly brilliant. Uh, and they weren't, we also had ad salespeople, but I felt that was the competitive advantage. And that what people, not, some people didn't realize at the time was that the internet, the internet for advertising infrastructure, technology did, was going to play a huge role. And that you could dynamically target these ads and give you a different ad than me, and that would make it ultimately much more effective than other medium. And that turned out to be true. Hmm. So you looked at this company, and uh, what was it like coming in? I mean, you know, after twenty people, like you've already mm -hmm. somewhat, you know, established uh, a culture, mm -hmm. and you know, people have been there longer than you, and you know, there's a certain feel to it. How, how do you come into an environment like that? That on one has is a startup, but mm -hmm. on the other hand, has enough people that you know. The company is about something already. Yeah, and it, it was only about six months old, and we were going so quickly that we were able to shape the culture even from that point going forward because at the end of the first year, you know, six months later, we had uh, 60 people, and then a year later, it had 175 people, ah. and then 450 people, and then the year after that, 2,000 people. <laughs> so 
Um, but I think the culture at DoubleClick today, if you interview DoubleClick alumni, will, they'll still say they think it was one of the, the best, most exciting, fun places to work um, that anyone has seen, certainly in New York, in the internet area, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I'm also proud of the fact that there are, there are so many companies now run by DoubleClick alumni, and it's something I said, uh, you know, probably eight years ago at a sales conference. I looked out the room and said, you know what, I will feel great in 10 years if, I'm, if there are 10 people in this room who are CEOs. And it's turning out to be the case. Wow. Yeah, there's an article in Cranes I read recently uh, yep. all about the DoubleClick Alumni Club. Yeah, and there are more. I mean, even I did reference calls last week for two, two more people who are taking over as CEOs of, uh, of other companies right now wow. from alumni. But now tell me when you took over as CEO, mm -hmm. like when you got in that driver's seat and they said, mm -hmm. okay, you know, you're in charge, do what you want. What were the first things that you did? Well, I became CEO about four years later. I became president uh, a year after getting there. And we really had a partnership, Kevin O'Connor and myself. And, uh, you know, the key was managing the growth. Uh, it was going very, very quickly. So we feel like we compressed 20 years of business into about two years. So, you know, we went public a year and a half after I joined. And that was a year in our third year where we did, uh, ended up doing about $90 million in revenue. So it was an extraordinary time. There are very few times in history where a company can grow that quickly um, and uh, expand. Uh, for example, a big focus of mine was expanding internationally. We felt like it was going to be a long-term competitive weapon and other people wouldn't get there as quickly. Uh, and it, that turned out to be the case. So we were operating in 30 or 40 countries, uh, which, is an, uh, which is fascinating and a, and a big challenge. Ah. So now, how do you do that? You know, there's so many challenges when you're starting a business. You have to worry about sales, infrastructure, so, you know, you have all that just like all your competitors do. And then you say, not only that, but we're going to grow at a much faster pace than everybody yeah. else. That's our plan. How do you, you know, what do you do differently to grow that fast? So all, all you can really do is, is have great people and force everyone to continue delegating. I think where companies get tripped up is when, in the beginning, I, I was signing every single check and I would sign off on every single deal. And that works fine when you have 20 people. But very quickly, you've got to decide, you know what? I, I'm, I'm only going to sign off on certain deals or on certain checks. And, but it, that you had to change those things every three to six months because the company's growing so quickly. So, you know, very quickly, all of a sudden, there's whole companies in countries set up. And, you know, I've never been there. I've never met the people. And you've just got to trust that you have a great team and they're managing it well. The other thing you have to do is if situations are not working out, you know, if you hire 10 people, they're not all going to be great. You've got to be willing to make changes and make them relatively mm -hmm. quickly. So tell me, they say that growth masks a lot of mistakes. Tell mm -hmm. me, you know, during that growth, what were some of the biggest mistakes you made? Oh, I think uh, over a period of, of nine years, we made tons of mistakes. Uh, luckily, on average, you know, we, we did well. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, whether it was uh, acquisitions that we did that didn't work out, that weren't worth what we thought, the first email company we bought, we hadn't done enough research, the technology wasn't very good, we ended up buying another company. Uh, but had paid $20 million for that and probably got very little value out of it. Um, we, had, uh, we had offices that didn't work. We had individual products that we spent time on that didn't work. Um, so there were many, many things along the way. As long as you self-correct and say, look, let's just either shut it down, move on, um, you know, you can, you can recover just fine. Hmm. So tell me, how did it change as you were going along and, you know, every year the internet just heated up more and more, like, did it change how you operated your business, how you evaluated opportunities, how aggressive you were based on what the market looked like? The, yeah, the big challenge at the time was trying to balance the fact that if you grow too quickly, you'll make catastrophic mistakes. On the other hand, if you didn't grow quickly, you'd start to lose market share. 
and then someone else might be in a better position. Uh, and so you didn't want that to happen either. So how do you strike that, that middle ground? And there's no manual for that. It's a judgment call at every time. You know, we had a, we had a good board of directors. Uh, we had a good management team. Um, and we, you know, made decisions quickly and, and uh, did the best we could. Um, so in general, I was pretty happy with uh, most of the decisions that we made and, uh, and the people we hired. That's great. And how, how did it feel for you personally? Like, did you feel like, you know, you were in control and you knew what you were doing? Or It, it, it did feel like uh, that's, that's too strong. I felt like we were pretty much in control. And if, if you're completely in control, then at the time you probably weren't growing fast enough. One of the things I'd say overall, though, when I look back, is we, we definitely spent too much money. I mean, there was, we could have you had less dilution to our shares. Um, it, it felt like capital was free. And that, uh, you know, there were many times where there would be a, a party and acquisition or things. I think that everyone at that time, including us, spent too much money. Mm. And, and today that I'm launching companies, and I see other people launching companies, everyone is, is more careful and more thoughtful and more cautious. Yeah, so tell me kind of the end game with this. So I know uh, you got to an IPO. Mm -hmm. And yeah. tell me about the IPO process first, so, and then there's a lot to yeah. talk about after that. So the IPO, at that time, the IPO process went incredibly well, and it was easy because investors didn't know what they're investing in. <laughs> um, I had people just say, look, we don't really understand what you're doing, but we want to buy shares because we, we've heard it's good. Um, so it, it made you a little worried about, you know, how money's being invested out there. <laughs> Um, but over time, everyone got more sophisticated, investors as well as companies. So, look, for everyone who's 97 to 2000, you felt like you were on top of the world. Every business cover was the Internet. Every person wanted to work in the Internet. And we were the largest company in New York City. So it was just a great time. And then from 2000, halfway through 2000 to uh, 2002, uh, was the opposite side of that. Um, so we sort of paid our price as an as entire industry. Um, you know, I can remember one week uh, at the end of uh, being in 2000 when our stock price value of the company went up a billion dollars during the week. <laughs> and um, I thought, this is uh, this has got to be the beginning of the end here. Um, and, but luckily, we had raised a lot of money and uh, done a secondary and had a lot of money in the bank. And then things started going down. So we went, we had a very ugly period for two and a half years where we went from 2,000 people down to 1,000 people. And we sold off some divisions. We closed down some divisions. We let a lot of people go. And, you know, no one is really fully prepared in business school for those conversations with people who have done a fantastic job, who were there at the IPO party that night, who worked all-nighters if it was necessary. And then you have to say, sorry, we just don't have enough business. We had 70% of our clients who, you know, went under. And, you know, you're prepared for 10%. You're prepared for 20%. I don't think anyone prepares you for 70%. Wow. So what was the moment when you realized that we have to lay people off? And then the other tough part is, you know, you never know, I, I imagine, exactly how many people you need to lay off and you have to make that call, right? So Yeah, I would say, and, and what I always remember for some reason is one of the toughest parts is we, business started dropping and we, we said we're going to lay a certain number of people off. And when people said, look, we're going we're gonna to do this, this is it, we're finished, um, you know, we have the right staffing levels and not knowing that business was going to drop even more. Mm. And so then we had to go back and do it again. And that's where we lost, uh, people had lost faith and trust, uh, some of them in management because they, they would say, look, these guys don't know what they're doing. And the real answer is, you know, we weren't sure when things were going to bottom out and there's in retrospect, it did happen, but no one knew when it was going to occur. And so you're not sure what to do. And uh, you, every six months you look at it 
but we had multiple rounds of layoffs and it just got harder and harder and harder. And some of my managers at certain points said, look, you know, I just can't go through this anymore. You know, I, I need to work somewhere else. And so you had to ease people out. Say, look, we need someone who's excited about this and who's positive and maintain the focus. And that's the hardest thing to do is, you know, the senior management has to always feel positive and be positive about the future. And it's hard to do based in a, in a terrible recession. Did you ever lose faith or were you ever close to quitting? Never. I never, I, I never came close to quitting. I always knew that, you know, the fundamentals of the internet were going to win out. I didn't know at what level, but, you know, you saw that underlying all this, that more and more people were coming online, more and more people were buying things, that if they were buying things online, people were going to advertise online. And so, and we were the biggest player. And so, you know, we, I, I knew and we had the best technology. So as long as we kept it together, I, I always knew that we would be the number one player and succeed. Yeah, so when you went through those actual layoffs, though, like, you know, did you find out there was like a, a better way to do it? Was there, you know, something you learned from that or is it just a bad thing altogether? Well, look, it's, it's never a good thing. All you can do is be as straightforward as possible with everyone and explain what's happening. And most people, you know, luckily after a while, everyone could see that it was a sector problem. You know, we were not doing worse than other people. Uh, we were just maybe bigger, but in fact, what was really happening is through that period, we gained a lot of market share because I think it was Khrushchev who once said that in the famine, the fat get thin and the thin die. And we could see that the thin were dying and going out of business and we were picking up their business. So we lost 70% of our clients, but we picked up about 30% back from other people who went out of business. And so we ended up with a bigger market share than we started with. And emerged with, with double was in 2004, five, six, seven. Today, as an extremely profitable, uh, you know, company with a huge, huge market mm. share. And now you also change your uh, core business model along the way. If it was, mm -hmm. if I understand right, it was originally an ad network where you would sell the ads, place it to media companies, so you'd be a part of that ad exchange. Then you switched over to being a technology company actually serving the ads. In, in some ways, the original product was an ad-serving product. And so the first application of the ad-serving product was for a network. But in the first year in 96, we had both the technology business and the media business. What happened was that the media business just grew so much faster that everyone thought of it as being our core business. But in fact, we were pursuing both. And then ultimately always made more money in the technology business uh, than we did in the media business. And over time, also started to feel like we were having some conflicts. Some of the larger players didn't want to deal with this on the technology side because they felt like we were selling ads and competing against them. So, you know, when, when times are tough, I do think you need to look at your businesses and focus. And you have to make some tough decisions. And one of them for us was getting out of the media business. But I think it was the right decision, even in retrospect. Um, and that focus allowed us to get through those three years, maintain our market share, prove our product, do a great job. And today, DoubleClick's a very, very valuable company, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. And now to kind of follow out that story, you mm -hmm. eventually sold it to mm -hmm. a private equity firm. And what was the exit at $1.1 billion yeah. at the time? Yeah. A couple of years ago, we sold it for $1.1 billion to uh, Hellman and Friedman. Uh, and, uh, and they've done, you know, a very good job, and the business continued to grow. And as you saw last week, was uh, sold again for about $3 billion to uh, Google. So, and I think that's a very good fit. Mm. And... Uh, you know, three years from now, Google will look back and think that it was a good purchase. Does it make you think, man, you know, maybe I should have stuck in here and ran a little bit longer and had this really cool exit? You know, 
Um, you forget at the time that you know one billion was a lot, and it felt like yeah. a good time. Still is a lot, right? Yeah. For me personally, I was ready to do something else, and so I had been you know working in ad serving space for nine years, um, and so I really wanted to get back, and I felt there were opportunities in smaller companies, and so Dwight Merriman, who is one of the co-founders of DoubleClick, uh, he and I both wanted to do startups together. And so since then, we've started three companies and uh, they're going very, very well. And so I've had much more fun personally, but I've been very happy because all the people who worked for me who ran the various divisions stayed and have had a great experience during the last two years and have, have done well and in, enjoyed it. That's great. I want to get into those companies first. I'm mm -hmm. just curious, your comment, you know, you were talking before about the conflict that you had when you were in the media business and the tech ad serving business. Mm -hmm. Now Google's in both again since they've acquired DoubleClick, mm -hmm. the tech side, and they've been doing the media side. So what do you, what do you think you know, it's going to be like for Google now with DoubleClick on their hands? Well, I think they can manage it now uh, if, in the way that they manage a potential conflict in search. If I do a search on Google's product today, um, they don't, I don't believe, bias that product you know, to help Google and to hurt Yahoo. If they did, as a consumer, that product would become less attractive. And so they've decided not to do that. So here they have to manage that. And if big clients like AOL or eBay or MySpace feel like the double product is being used to just help uh, Google and not them, they'll have an issue. But I, knowing, I know the guys at Google very well, and I think they recognize this issue, and they're not going to do it, and they're going to manage it well because it's very complimentary and allow Google to better serve their customers. Hmm. And how do you think the media companies view this? So, you know, even if Google is managing it the right way, mm -hmm. you know, media companies, they look from the outside in and, you know, they're always skeptical of partners. They have a lot of issues in that sense. You think uh, it's going to be viewed positively in the industry or do you think that the media companies will continue to deal with DoubleClick in the same way? I think that they'll feel just even more the way they do right now, which is that they think Google has a very good product. They're sometimes nervous that Google is too powerful. This, you know, gives Google more tools both to help players, but it makes them very, very powerful. And I know many publishers are nervous about that, but they continue to use Google because it works well. And yeah. ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, when you're looking for corporate vendors, which is really what these companies are, if it works and helps your business, then you keep using it. And if you don't, if it doesn't, you'll go to other competitors. And yeah. I have a lot of confidence in the startups out there that there'll be other alternatives over time. Uh, but if Google and Doublelick maintain their focus, they can maintain their lead. And it sounds like you'll be uh, right on top of that when it happens. So, so you left, uh, left Doubleclick after mm -hmm. getting this great sale. Now, you know, you've got some money in the bank. Mm -hmm. A lot of people take vacations, mm -hmm. you know, go back, travel in Europe get involved in foundations. Mm -hmm. So what made you decide to start, you know, not just one startup, but three in addition to angel investing? Well, I, um, I just felt like it was a fantastic time in the internet. And so it's a different than it was in 96, 97. Uh, it's not as hyped right now, but a tremendous time to be starting companies. There's unlimited capital available. There's a proven business model. There's, uh, the fundamentals of advertising and commerce and subscriptions, which are the three elements of the ecosystem, are all doing great. And I just, I didn't want to miss those opportunities right now. Uh, I also knew a lot of people in the space who wanted to come join me for these various companies, people I'd worked with in the past. And so I wanted to do that now. And, you know, I, I'm just having a fantastic, it's just so fun. It is so fun. There's nothing more fun than taking a concept from scratch with all the risks, with all the reasons people think you can't do it, 
and building it up and competing against other players and winning deals uh, and building up a corporate culture and where people come to you and say, you know what, I'm having a fantastic time. So mm -hmm. I love that. So what was the first thing? You know, you got done with DoubleClick. Mm -hmm. You're sitting around. I guess you would, would you go have coffee with your partner? What, you know, what was the first meeting like there? What was the very kind of, you know, uh, Kevin 2.0? <laughs> well, we, we had decided um, in the beginning of the sale process at DoubleClick that we were not going to stay regardless of who purchased the company. Uh, we wanted to do this. So we were already thinking about uh, business ideas out there. And one of the advantages of working at DoubleClick, especially being CEO, is I used to spend my week, you know, going out and seeing, you know, all kinds of companies because they were all clients of ours, whether it was at eBay or a small startup or in the search business or a catalog company. You know, we had thousands and thousands of clients. So it exposed me to hundreds of business models. And uh, I've always been thinking about what's working and what's not working. And so we felt there was a big opportunity in a couple different areas. And so we pursued two of them right away, uh, Panther Express and ShopWiki and then um, launched Music Nation uh, a year later. I already had an investment in the ladders and was spending some time there, and then in a company in Paris called Brand Alley, which is uh, a, a discount outlet mall online in the French market. Okay, cool. So let's start with Panther. Mm -hmm. That's, um, as far as I understand, a content delivery network, mm -hmm. so a way of getting large media files yep. to consumers, and I guess that'd be competitive to the legacy players like Akamai, which is... Yep. An extremely well-respected company Absolutely. and Limelight, which is a great kind of entrepreneurial success yep. story. So, you know, you see this field with like, you know, two companies that everyone's very happy with. And it seems like one of these kind of boring businesses that you have to be mm -hmm. at a huge scale with. What makes you think you can cause trouble there? Yeah. And, uh, and it, it turns out there's a big opportunity there. When we uh, started the company two years ago, Spadero was the number two player and Akamai bought them. And there's always room for other players. This is a sector that's going to be a, a cross over a billion dollars in revenue. Um, we felt there was an opportunity for a very low-cost infrastructure. The big advantage we had is that um, you know, we've been dealing with scalable systems on a global basis and caching for 10 years, so longer than anyone out there other than Akamai. So we have a lot of experience, have a lot of publisher relationships, um, and so we felt like those could be used to, to provide an alternative out there. And so we need, knew it had to be very high performance, but yet low cost and flexible business terms. And so we, our first client was last May, and now we've had over 75 clients, almost 100 clients now, which is incredibly quickly. Um, great team. Uh, we have uh, over 25 people now. And uh, the business is going to grow about 10 times uh, from January to December. So it's, uh, it's really looking good. Wow. And uh, how much did that business take to get going? It sounds like it'd be an expensive venture to build out this huge content delivery network, you know, global servers. Right. Well, one of the things that's changed, first of all, uh, that we designed it to use less hardware than I think many of our competitors. Um, we only add as we need it for our, our clients um, because hardware costs have come down probably 95% from the year 2000. Um, so, and, but there's lots of capital out there. So Dwight, you know, we funded the company for the first year and then, uh, and then brought in Greylock uh, as a VC partner, they were, they also invested in DoubleClick 10 years ago. So I've known them for a long time. <laughs> and, um, and so, no, we haven't actually had to use a tremendous amount of capital, partly because revenues are growing so quickly. Uh, and, uh, and what, what was kind of the pitch when you go out there? Was this, we're cheaper than the next guy? Great. They, everyone tests. So this is all about the performance. So they want to see the performance and they want to, there's only two other elements, which is you have flexible terms and, uh, and, and price. Um, and then what people often value after that even more than they think is the service and so we have an incredibly good very senior group of people most of whom have worked at DoubleClick in the past 
um, engineers and, and support people who, and that's why, that's why people stay is they, they love the service and they love the product. Were you worried about doing a business where you have to kind of hang your hat on price? You know, you look at Delna, I mean, that was a great mm-hmm. success story, but often, you know, the old adage is if you compete on price, eventually someone comes in cheaper and, you know, then it's a race to the bottom. Well, there's, you know, there are multiple um, CDNs out there. And so what people do is check the performance and availability and speed are very important. And so when we go head to head almost against anyone, we're going to be faster. So um, Akamai will generally be a little bit faster, but also be more expensive. And so if you looked at the car market, you wouldn't say that there's a, it's a commodity market. You'd say, well, there's, there's a Lamborghini sector, there's a Mercedes luxury sector, and then there's a, a vertical, and then below that, there's less expensive. And so there's maybe six or seven different parts of that market. And that's where we saw openings, is that, you know, it, it, for us, it's high performance, mm. but, but lower cost. So it would be more like a, a Toyota or a Honda, you know, which happens to be the top-selling cars in the United States. But it's not a Lamborghini. I'm curious about kind of your style in building these companies. Mm-hmm. I remember I visited the Panther office maybe nine months ago mm-hmm. about content delivery for our podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember it struck me, you had them and your other company, which I want to talk about next, crammed into this mm-hmm. office. I think like two or three high-level people were working at the reception desk when I mm-hmm. came in. I think the only uh, area for quiet was a little phone booth that you'd mm-hmm. set up. Yep. So, you know, what was your thought behind that? You know, some people, when they do their second venture, they figure, hey, I can raise a bunch of money. We're all going to have a nice desk this time. No, it's very important to keep it lean. So, you know, you, uh, you know I don't have an office. I have one of the desks uh, among everyone else. And uh, it's very important in the beginning to send a message that it's, 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 a, it's low cost. You're going to stay lean. Uh, you're going to stay efficient. Uh, I think it's a higher energy level when you have lots of people around. Uh, there's more sharing. Uh, when people don't have individual offices. So um, I love that environment and, and missed it. And I think, uh, you know, people have fun working there. Do you find it tough, though? I mean, a lot of people like to, you know, have their office to make private telephone calls and to, um, you know, have a few downtimes and think strategically. You know, what happens to that? Well, what we do is we have, um, there's a couple conference rooms that are small conference rooms, and one of them is right, you know, right next to my desk. And I do spend a lot of time on the phone uh, so I go in there uh, for phone calls, and uh, other people do as well to, to go in there for phone calls. But since you've come uh, to our office, Panther moved up to the fifth floor. So they have their own floor <laughs> now uh, as everyone has expanded. Uh, uh, so we have a little bit more space now. Okay, but at least there's only an elevator between the two companies. Yeah. So let me ask, you know, it, one company, it's a lot of time, mm-hmm. and, you know, now you can go on vacation, and so you got all these other things going. So... What's going through your head when you say, hey, let's start a second company? Well, um, you know, it's funny because in many ways, when you think back two years ago, if I were sitting here, I, I would have been managing 1,500 people in 25 countries around the world, multiple businesses, also publicly traded, lots of investors. So that's a whole set of challenges. Here, you know, now uh, it's gone very quickly, but, you know, I have fewer than 100 people. They're all very close together. Um, and so it's, yes, they are different companies, but, uh, I, you know, I've hired CEOs for almost each, for each one of the companies. Um, so I can, uh, I can contribute, you know, in any way I want to and have a great working relationship. But, uh, no, I think it's the different challenge than growing double very quickly, which is you just have, it's the same thing. You have to have great people, um, and you have to delegate and, uh, and, and yet stay on top of things and monitor them. Hmm. So, so far, so good. <laughs> And what was, and now what's your kind of philosophy with this? It seems like rather than thinking you're going to grow 
one of these companies to be like the next double click and be, you know, thousands of people, you seem to just keep launching more companies. Well, that depends. I, you know, in, I wouldn't exclude the idea that one of these will become a very, very large company. Um, you just have to see. I mean, it, it's impossible to, to have five companies and have all of them become billion-dollar companies. Um, but so far, you know, now that we're a year and a half, two years in, um, you know, we're, we're on target and things are going very well. So I think they'll continue to grow and do well. Um, I think we will be more careful about hiring people and more careful about costs. Uh, we want to maintain higher ownership in the companies. You know, over time at DoubleClick, we got diluted down so that we ended up with a smaller percentage of the company than we, you know, will have in this situation. Um, so I don't think it's a different philosophy. We want these companies to grow and be as big as they can and as successful as they can, as long as they're servicing their customers. Hmm. So tell me about your next idea. How did you come up with ShopWiki? So ShopWiki we came up with because we felt as consumers that there was a real need um, for an independent consumer-oriented uh, shopping engine, uh, search engine for shopping. So when I go to, sh to uh, do a search on shopping.com or Shopzilla or Pricegrabber or Nextag, you know, those aren't search engines. Those aren't, I, I, you know, most consumers don't realize that those aren't companies that are going out there and searching all the, all the sites for all the coffee makers out there, if that's what I'm looking for. They're just taking ads. So people send them data feeds, they pay them, and so they show up. So any, each one of those players generally has maybe six, 7,000 uh, websites who provide uh, commerce opportunities. I would do searches and I wouldn't find things from site, and I know they're out there. So we have a search engine, which is a very hard thing to do. We're searching 180,000 different websites. And so I can show you searches where we'll turn up, you know, an item in 10 different websites and I'll do the same search on one of our competitors. They don't even have it. And so it's a fundamentally different consumer experience. Also, this is a real technology company. Secondly, I can do a very specific type of search if I want a yellow diamond ring, more than one carat, less than $10,000, you just enter that in to the search line on ChopWiki and you'll find it. That search won't work you know, on Google or anywhere else. It won't they won't understand what you're doing. Uh, so there are things like that that we're doing that uh, I think make it fundamentally better experience for consumers, whereas I think our competitors were designed to optimize business for merchants. And that's the, that's the, the theory. And so we've been working on the technology for the last two years. The site's up and running. I think it's working well. We're going to be expanding into the UK next uh, week. A uh, big part of our focus is going to be international, and so we'll be expanding into multiple countries uh, at the end of the year. And what makes it a wiki? There's a wiki part, which is that we also felt, it's not the key part of the, of the, of the business, but there's a wiki that gives um, buying guides. So, you know, most of the comparison shopping engines don't help you. If you're going to pick out an air conditioner, you know, we probably haven't purchased an air conditioner in 10 years. <laughs> Who knows how they really work? What are BTUs? What is this? So the wiki guide will explain to you independently how to buy something or what's important. You're buying a, a camera. What are megapixels? What do you need? Things like that. So there's about 1,800 different buying guides. Uh, so this sounds like a totally different business model than the first. And do you ever find it tough to kind of prioritize? Like, you know, someone comes to you, they say, Hey, I'm a great engineer. Where should I work? And now you're, you know, you're thinking, well, I could use this guy at both companies. <laughs> you know, because they're so different, um, there, there are very few people that would be a fit for each one of the companies, for both of those companies. And uh, so there it's not so much an issue. But I do have to always think about prioritizing my time. So should I be going on a sales call for Panther? Should I be uh, you know, working on a UI redesign for ShopWiki? Uh, things like that. A press interview for Music Nation. 
so there's, there's, I always have to juggle that. But I, you know, I, at DoubleClick, I always had to juggle, do I talk to an investor who owns you know, 10,000 shares, or do I do an interview or a press interview or go visit a customer? Same sort of thing. Prioritizing time is inexact science, but it's very, very important. Yeah, and tell me more about that, because I think you know, it's probably one of the toughest things when you're starting a business mm. is there's so much to do, and each you know, piece of it could be a full-time job. Yeah. How, what's your framework like? You know, what what exactly do you do to decide when that you know when your sales guy comes and say, hey, come on the sales call, and the UI guy says, spend two hours with me. How do you make that decision? Yeah, and I don't think there's a formula for it. Uh, one of the things I try and make sure is that at the beginning of the week, I'm always I'm listing just the three most important things, and make sure that I spend enough time on those three things because otherwise, I think we all fall into the trap that yeah, someone comes up and asks you an immediate thing that'll only take 20 minutes. And if you do 20 of those in a day, you never get to your important item. And so you've just got to be disciplined and carve out that time and say, no, I can't do it. Uh, but, I, but I think we all fall into that trap. So tell me about your third company, Music Nation. So third company was a year ago. I was just uh, you know, watching the, the very beginning stages of YouTube building up. So thought it was a great site, fantastic. Um, and was thinking about how certain verticals maybe could be done better if someone focused on them than what YouTube was doing. YouTube was just a tremendous amount of content, some good and some not good. Um, at the same time, of course, American Idol was a big phenomenon. I, 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 last 10 years, if I had to summarize what I do, it's think about how the internet can do something better than was done offline before, whether that's commerce, jobs, advertising, you know, all kinds of things. That's, that's really what I do. And here I thought, you know, American Idol, we could, we could do that online. And when I see 5,000 people lined up to try out for American Idol, I think, you know what, we should have them submit uh, a video and put it online, and we can still offer the value of hundreds of thousands of people will see them, they'll get a recording contract at the end, all the attractions of American Idol we can offer if I set up a business to do this. And on top of it, I realized that out of the 1,000 people who sing out there, most of them can't even enter American Idol because let's say they sing hip-hop. Well, there's no category for that. Let's say they're 35 years old. They can't enter American Idol. You know, let's say uh, they just can't make it to the tryouts. There's only tryouts in six or seven cities. What, what, what if I live in Alabama? <laughs> so here we can solve all those problems, and we have multiple verticals. You can submit your video. We have companies backed by uh, Sony BMG in the United States, Universal Music in Europe, and EMI in Asia. And so uh, we've been uh, blown away by the traffic. We have hundreds of thousands of people coming each month. Uh, we've had thousands of videos. The goal for us is not to have as many videos as YouTube. It's to have fewer videos, higher quality. And that's, it's a different positioning. It's sort of the minor leagues of music. And luckily for us, in some ways, the music industry is going through a very difficult time so that they're getting rid of their A&R people who sign up music talent. And we're finding great bands. So we're signing up bands right now for our label, which is part of the business. And then we're going to be expanding this uh, business into Europe starting this summer, into Asia next year, and into other, and expand the number of music verticals as well. So, so far, it's a success. Uh, have, you found the, have you found work? A lot of people find, you know, they come from one industry, like the internet industry or the ad industry, and they go into another industry, the music industry, which you've never been in before. Have you found that the dynamics there are just significantly different? Or do you get by? I think the dynamics are very different. Then I actually don't know anything about the music industry or certainly didn't know anything. I know a little bit more now. So the first thing I did there was hire a CEO and a chief marketing officer 
um, and eventually a general counsel and head of business development, all of whom came from the music industry. CEO had started his own record label at the age of 18, been in it for a long time. Uh, our chief marketing officer had worked at, at Warner Music um, and had had his own business in the music space. Uh, general counsel came from MTV. So these are people with a lot of music background. So I brought some internet um, background and they really brought the music background. I guess it's kind of the right combination there. Now, one thing we've talked about a lot on this show, we interview people all over the world and um, a lot of people in the Valley, and there's always a lot of debate over, you know, where to start a business, what it's like starting in different places. Some people say it doesn't matter. Others say, you know, you're a fool to start an internet business outside of the Valley. You know, what's your take on that in terms of what you've seen all over and specifically mm -hmm. doing all these businesses in New York? So... I'm probably biased, and I'm, I'm known as being a big cheerleader for the startup community in New York, but I will say I think it's a great place to start businesses, and it, in some ways better than Silicon Valley. Um, the community is bigger in Silicon Valley, but, uh, but in New York, you're closer to a lot of your customer base, depending on what type of business you're in. So, for example, Music Nation, all the music labels are, are in New York, and uh, the talent is in New York. Um, so that's very, very important. DoubleClick, we wanted to be in New York because the ad agencies are in New York and a lot of the key sites are in New York. So that's a huge advantage. You're closer to Europe as well, which is a key part of our market uh, for Panther and soon for ShopWiki. Um, I find that there, there actually uh, is a technology talent um, in New York, not as much as in Silicon Valley, but it's very good. And the business talent is, uh, is very, very good. I think it's harder, ironically, to find good sales talent in the technology space because there aren't as many technology companies there. I also find that people are much more loyal. You know, here they, they, in Silicon Valley, they tend to move around quite a bit. You know, you, you, your head of business development goes to a, a, a brunch on the weekend and comes back with an offer. Um, salaries are much higher here, ironically. Um, it's, you know, there's hard to find people. So I think you can do a business anywhere, but at the end of the day, all you really have in the internet business is, uh, you know, people. And so you need the core group of 10 or 20 people um, and in New York, I think you can find them. And I think that's why you're seeing more and more startups. Uh, many of the VC firms from Boston are now coming to New York uh, every week because they're seeing great opportunities there. Hmm. I, you know, interesting, 10 years ago when we started DoubleClick, people asked us, why weren't we in Boston? Uh, because we're on the East Coast, we should be in Boston. Today, no one asked that question. New York is clear second to Silicon Valley, um, but a great place to, to do business. You know, I, we're at the Web 2.0 Expo now, and I think, you know, one of the things that you've seen here is that kind of the enthusiasm about the Internet, and it seems like, you know, the level of money going into it and the number of companies started in it is higher since it's mm -hmm. been, you know, since the dot-com bust. Uh, you know, what's your take kind of on how things have changed for entrepreneurs, you know, starting out today and running companies now that, you know, times aren't bad anymore, times aren't tough anymore, mm -hmm. it's sexy again, it's getting attention again, money's out there. How, how does that change how you have to think and, you know, what opportunities you go after? Well, I think that I see lots of opportunities. If I had more time, I would actually be starting more companies because I really do see parts of the market where there are opportunities. And I think you can get experienced people now, which in 96, you know, no one had internet experience. Uh, so that was, that was a challenge. Um, so lots of experienced people and a market that keeps growing. Anytime you have a sector like advertising or e-commerce that's growing at 20% a year, and it's not so much the percentage, it's 20% off a big base. So maybe another $2 billion of advertising is coming in every year that wasn't there before. So 
that creates opportunities. Um, I think that, as always, many of the companies that are starting today will not work. That's inherent in startups. That's fine. Um, but people are spending less money. You don't see companies going out and spending, you know, $70 million in their first year. Uh, they're, they're, they're spending a couple million dollars here and there. Eventually, they'll be purchased. Some of them will merge. Some of them will stay independent. Um, some of them will go out of business. But I think that the ecosystem is doing extraordinarily well. I was very worried in 98 when I'd go see 10 clients, double-click clients, and realize none of them were making money. And so I remember thinking, you know, wow, I hope they start making money because eventually <laughs> we won't get paid, uh, which turned out to be worse than I thought. Um, today I go out and see 10 clients and, you know, seven of them are making money. And the other three are, some of them are on their way to making money. So the eco ecosystem is doing very, very well. So you're bullish on it? I'm incredibly bullish. And until I start seeing signs that there's a pullback, uh, I don't see anything different. But look, if we were doing a panel right now or a real conversation over drinks with mm. someone from the newspaper industry, someone from the TV industry, uh, you know, <laughs> the two of them would be very depressed. <laughs> they would be seeing nothing good happening. Uh, and I think that market share wise in the broadest sense, the internet's just going to continue to take share away from both of those industries as well as uh, on the commerce side mm. and the subscription side. And I think we've got another good five years of very significant growth. So the position you're in now where you're running, you know, or you've got these three companies mm -hmm. all with their own CEOs who yep. I imagine are responsible for, you know, driving the vision. Mm -hmm. uh, are you happy, you know, you're having more fun now with all these different CEOs and companies or were you having mm -hmm. more fun back when you just had one company that was really big? You know, I, look, I loved the, uh, you know, from 96 to 2000, uh, it was a fantastic experience. It was great. And so I think that success is always fun. Um, we were having a lot of success then. We're having a lot of success right now, so that's very fun. 2000 to 2003 was less fun, although I really wanted to see it through and prove that we had built a company that was very successful and it was going to be profitable. And I spent five years doing interviews and people would say, how come DoubleClick's not profitable? And how come the internet's not profitable? And I had to remind them that it will be, and it was, and that was <laughs> gratifying. So right now, I don't know, right now it's a different time, but I, I love it. I, I love uh, what we're doing and um, see, see more and more opportunities. So we're going to continue doing this uh, for the foreseeable future. And when you say continue, do you mean continue with these three, or are you going to launch another three over no, the next gonna year? No, I'm going to launch another one this year uh, in the e-commerce space. Um, so we're still, it's early stages. I've only hired the first three people. Uh, so it hasn't been announced yet, but that'll be announced uh, by August. Great. Can you give us some hints? Uh, it's in the e-commerce space. Uh, it's in the women's fashion space. Um, so in, in clothing. So, uh, but you'll see it's a different twist on, 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 on a business model. Okay, cool. So, so what's your advice now to entrepreneurs out there who are, you know, seeing what's going on, they're getting ready to ramp up a new business, or they're dealing with their fledgling business. You know, what, what do you think is the most important kind of takeaway that they should be thinking about? You know, I, I don't, I don't know if there's something that's just uh, um, completely breakthrough for them, but as long as they feel passionate about their idea and that they have a great team of people, um, and, and everyone thinks they have a good team of people, and you really have to ask the question, compared to the other teams of people out there, you know, is my, is my CTO really better than the average CTO? And is my, you know, whatever, head of sales really better? And often it's not the case. But with, look, with a great team of people, um, VCs will always tell you that, uh, they will figure it out. You know, many business models start going one way and then shift a little bit as they learn, uh, but great people will, will figure that out. 
And don't be afraid to take risks because right now, especially in the U.S. economy, you're not penalized. Let's say it doesn't work. You know, what's the real downside? Um, you know, big companies will hire you. You can start another company. You can become a VC. Uh, <laughs> you have lots of, lots of choices out there. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a pretty good time. That's a great message. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Kevin. Glad to be here. And best of luck with all your many ventures. <laughs> thanks. That's all for our show with Kevin Ryan. To track how DoubleClick does under Google, and also to check out all of Kevin's new companies, all three of them, go to VentureVoice.com where you can check out the show notes, get links to everything mentioned in this show, and also check out our blog where we keep updates and keep tabs on all of our past guests. Thanks again for tuning in. Make sure that you interact, leave a comments, call our voicemail line, and let us know what you think about this show. As always, it's great to have you. This is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship. <laughs>